Welcome to Jepper Bites. I'm your host, Lakshtata. We're live from day two of ZEJLF 2019, and the session you're about to listen to is called Where Does Fiction Come From? Andrew Sean Greer, Ben O'Cree, Tanya James, and Vikram Chandra in conversation with Chandrahas Chaudhary. question of where fiction comes from, I think there are uh, as many answers as there are writers. And um, I think for some writers, fiction comes from uh, an exhilaration with life, and for some others, an exasperation with it. And uh, some people write stories and novels uh, because they love people, and some others because they love literature. Uh, and and uh, some writers... For, for them, uh, the question of where fiction comes from is, is, is a mystery that never disappears. So uh, they still write from, from uh, an unawareness of where it comes from, and some others do know. And even from the ones who do know where fiction comes from, there are those who uh, are willing to talk about it and those who refuse to reveal their secrets. So uh, I do not know uh, which kind we have here on stage today, but um, let's begin with you, Andrew, since it is... Your uh, first time at JLF, uh, unlike Tanya and Vikram. And um, uh, you just won the Pulitzer Prize with Les. And uh, among the things, <laughs> a very delightful read, but um, uh, I was uh, interested in the things that you said in uh, working out what its tone was going to be. And this brings up the question that in fiction, there's this, the, uh, when one writes fiction, there are two things one has to establish. One, uh, who the characters are. And two, what kind of attitude the narrator is going to have towards the dilemmas of the characters. And it's only when you sorted out the second answer that you could sort of get into the material, isn't it? Do you want to tell us something about that process? Yeah. I, it feels like a game show in some way, that one of us has, a, has the secret to it. Because I think all of us are dying to hear what the other ones say because I bet we actually don't know where fiction comes from, and I hope one of them does, because it'll help me. I do know on this book, I looked back on my first notes on the book a few days ago, or a week ago, um, to see what I'd started off with, and it was amazing, because it was uh, a very somber, serious novel, um, a completely different character, uh, different city, different plot, and yet a lot of the sentences were the same as the ones in the book now, which I thought was crazy. I had somehow cannibalized this earlier version, thrown everything away except the sentences. So somehow I knew the theme, but I got everything else wrong. And it was, but I was, I was sort of digging my, tunneling my way towards it. And now I try to pretend that I knew what I was doing the whole yes. time, but it's clearly I was lost. But, um... Did you find that, uh, how did you know that it wasn't working? Which I think is the question that uh, uh, vexes all of us sometimes. Because you have to kind of auto-diagnose your own disorders, isn't it? And sometimes you just are willing to let a book go, and sometimes it's, it's not the case. I have tried to let a, a book go. I had, one, my agent may be here. There was one book I tried to sell, give back to the publishing house, 
And she said, Andrew, I think you're reacting strongly to the editing process. And one writer friend of mine said, um, give it up. Write a new book. That's what you should do. And another um, friend said, no, no. Your talent is not an in invention and glory and beauty every day. It is seeing it through to the end. And even if you think you're faking it, the reader will never know. Uh-huh. So that is my, I have a fake book out there. I will never tell you which one it is. Everyone can come with their own guesses. What, what made you want to write fiction, though? Can you remember uh, how it all began for you? That's easy. It's because I was a big reader. And I just wanted to, I think like any young person, if you're a, a fan of, of high diving, you want to high dive or you want to dress like Superman or something. So I, I wrote my first book when I was 16, not knowing that I'm a terrible writer at 16. I still have the book, but it's like Wuthering Heights. That's what I was imitating. I'm sorry to say. Vikram, I'm going to move to you. Um, we are missing someone who I think uh, would also have uh, been a good qu person to ask this question to Ben Okri. He seems to have deserted us altogether, which leaves you to bear the burden of uh, trying to make the link between uh, the writing of novels and the use of myth as a kind of superstructure beneath them, which uh, is uh, a very prominent strand in your work and perhaps something that you have rethought across your novels, from Red Earth and Pouring Rain all the way down to uh, Love and Longing in Bombay and Sacred Games. So uh, please tell us something about mythic structure, because I know you also teach writing, and this is clearly a question that uh, takes novel writing back to the first stories ever told. Um. The uses of uh, <clears throat> mythological structures and illusions uh, allows you to tap into some very deep-rooted characteristics of your reader as well as an entire culture. So it becomes a way of resonating with these structures that um, are very old and very powerful so that if you rework them and implant them in your fiction, it's useful in just in terms of like manufacturing irony or making connections. But most of all, I just think the resonance becomes so deep uh, when you use that kind of imagery or you use that kind of characterization that people really, uh, they don't, might not even realize why they're reacting to your fiction in that way, but they are. Mm -hmm. And I certainly, as a reader, I'm very interested in people using not just mythology, but older references, structures, which are widespread through an entire culture and, and uh, exploiting those. What is a source text for you, something that you go back to to sort of uh, refresh your storytelling sense? Um, I think two of them. One is the Mahabharat, uh, just because it's such an, it's such an extreme story. Um, uh, I don't know if you, uh, some of you might know this already, uh, that in very orthodox households, still, you don't keep the Mahabharat inside the house. I wasn't allowed when I bought it at, uh, in a shop in Delhi at the age of 19. I bought it for my father made me give it away. Yeah, yeah. Uh. The reason for that is that the book uh, extends itself into such great violence, the destruction of entire society. So the idea is that the power of the book will cause disruptions within your household, right? So you're, you're supposed to keep it outside the house in some study far away. Um, so I, I come back to that again and again because as the saying goes, Everything in the universe is in that one story. Uh, and the other uh, palate cleanser that I often, uh, I always go back to is Great Gatsby, 
right? Um, and, and it's such an extraordinary, beautiful book. And um, there again, you see Fitzgerald investigating the mythologies of America, mm. right? And the, using those those images and, and uh, um, structures to make his book resonant. Do story and fiction mean the same thing for you, or are they different things? This, is fiction a kind of updated version of what stories with certain things it can do and can't do? Hmm. I'm not sure I understand the question, but let me have a whack at it anyway. Uh, so, I mean, I think for me, fiction is one way in which people use story. Um, I think we are, as, as a species, we are a narrative-seeking and narrative-making species. We can't help but see story everywhere. Right, so even in politics, if somebody says, you know, uh, let's make America great again, <laughs> that in a sense is a kind of narrative storytelling that, incredibly enough, resonates really well, right, uh, across an entire culture. So, so if you can, uh, you, you, there's things that are labeled fiction which are narrative, but there's also lots of narrative which is very powerful, which is not labeled as fiction. But I, I see stories everywhere. I think it's an interesting distinction because uh, Mario Vargas Llosa says in one of his books that um, not all human beings have a need for fiction, but everybody has a need for story, which chimes with what you were just saying. But that does suggest that there could be a time when, uh, and perhaps uh, you are very well placed to think about this since Sacred Games has just been made into a, into a Netflix series. Where is fiction going? Is it perhaps going away from words into the visual sphere or where these, these things are interlinked? No, I think books will exist forever. Um, uh, I think I, I find often, you know, every six months or a year, somebody will write a new essay about the death of the novel. And I always find those reports greatly exaggerated. I think there are more people writing and reading now than ever before on a global scale. Um, and so it might not have the centrality that the novel had in the 19th century, but as a, as, as a technology, I think it remains rele re relevant and will continue to do so. I think also notice that they're making a series out of your novel. Like, I think the storytelling begins best with writers like you, and that they can adapt. Right, and adapt radically, as those of you who know has seen the, the series. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think uh, that's one of the things that's become very apparent, not just in the sort of realm of Netflix, but even in Bombay in the film industry. Um, suddenly, somebody seems to have, woke, everyone seems to have woken up to the idea that we need good storytelling. And now more than ever before, writers in India are getting their books optioned, often uh, as, as or even before they're published. Uh, people hear the buzz and option of a book. Tanya, I have a question for you. Uh, a writer friend once said to me, I think it was completely true, that uh, as far as writing goes, uh, among all the arts, it's probably the most unstimulating in the actual practice of it. You know, musicians have notes to mess around with. Uh, painters have paint. But uh, to sit down in front of a blank screen and use the same words that are all around you in newspapers and books uh, is hard work. And it kind of suggests that uh, what you do at your desk is only the end of, of the fiction writing process, not necessarily the beginning. And you must, in a way, already know what you are going to uh, be attacking. And what is that for you? Where is inspiration from for you? I, I, I think, you know, inspiration can come from anywhere, as you, you, many of you know. It could be an image, it could be a gesture, a newspaper headline. But what is probably more important to me 
in the writing process is not that source so much as my feeling about the source, that my feeling about that image or that gesture, whatever it is. It's that feeling that kind of sustains me through the first draft and that kind of gets it done. And then the second draft or the third draft, I might find that, you know, I'm dismantling the whole thing and that really there's new things that are interesting to me. And um, so I have to be willing to let go of whatever that initial impulse was. But that feeling, that excitement or that wonder is so important in order to sustain, especially for a novel, I think, in order to sustain my kind of belief in it. You kind of have to fool yourself into believing that this is real and worthy of devoting a year or five years or whatever it is. Um, with Tusk, which was my latest novel, I, I, um, I took the perspective of a, a rogue elephant um, for part of the novel. And I think, uh, I was trying to think this morning about what I was, what inspired or what were those early impulses. And um, I'm sure it had something to do with elephant grieving rituals and things like that. Um, I couldn't remember what it was, but I happened across this story I'd bookmarked last year. I don't know if you guys, some of you might have read about this. This, there was this orca whale, um, a mother who was um, seen off the coast of Vancouver Island, and she was pushing her dead calf, um, carrying it. And um, this is not unusual for whales, uh, orca whales, but um, she, she was carrying it for 16 days. And um, uh, people were transfixed. I was transfixed, and I'm getting emotional just talking about it. Um, but maybe this is a way of talking about something that I think is hard to teach, which is um, I am getting emotional because it matters to me. This image matters to me. It is, it is touching something in my own emotional history. And if what you're writing doesn't matter to you, then it's not going to matter to anybody else. When I was a graduate student, there were, I was surrounded by brilliant people. They could write circles around me, you know, uh, on the sentence level. They were brilliant at craft. What I've come to learn over time um, is that vulnerability is very hard. It's very hard to kind of open up your own wounds and stick your fingers in the wounds. Um, but if you're not willing to do that, then you're really not, you're speaking only to yourself. You're not speaking to the reader. And I feel it, both of you, all of your work, um, I, have, I read it, I have moments where I think this is, here's the author putting his neck on the line. And it's a gift, you know, it's a gift to the reader. And so um, perhaps even more important than inspiration is finding that moment where you're actually doing that. You're willing to be that open, that vulnerable. You're here. Thank you for that. Good. I think this is a, this is a, 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 a good opening in the sense. Oh, we have um, we, we have a new friend on stage, ah. Ben Oakley. <laughs> really beautiful to be here. Just carry on. <laughs> Thank you. The last time I did an event with Ben was JLF 2012. At which time. There was only the two of us on stage, so I had to look at everybody silently for 15 minutes. But in, in this case, we have upgraded that. Yeah. Yeah. Tanya, just to f finish off on what you were saying, um, since you mentioned uh, this very important idea in literature, vulnerability and then what that emotion does to uh, make your work richer, uh, from the idea of vulnerability proceeds the... Um, 
the idea of intensity. Because uh, in a way, you don't, have to, don't just have to write about the emotion in fiction. You have to make a path inside the world of the story or the novel for the reader so that they can sort of reproduce that emotion in their own experience, reading experience, isn't it? And since you write both short stories and novels, I was wondering whether um, they have to be written to a different rhythm in a way because uh, they're, the, they're uh, so different in terms of the space they occupy that you cannot use one method for the other. Although it looks superficial like they're both fiction, there are different methods to go about writing that. Um, yeah, I, I, I enjoy writing short stories in a way more than novels. I feel like in novels you have to, you have to be comfortable with suspension or being kind of suspended and, and not knowing. Uh, well, in short stories that's true too, but there's a kind of obsessiveness, a kind of intensity. I like it almost, my stories are getting shorter and shorter. I think it's, I, I like, it's almost like looking at something through binoculars and you can, you can't see what you're looking at, but you, you can't stop looking at it. And I think there's always, well, if it's going well, there's a moment where the frame kind of falls away and the story is kind of pivoting out of my grasp. And, and um, this doesn't have anything to do, for me, um, with understanding what the story is about or with theme, but it's more because I'm attending to the character's desires or their pain or whatever it is. Um, and then the story kind of takes on this sort of spontaneity, this kind of spontaneity of life or, um, where I, I didn't know what was going to happen. I didn't realize something was going to happen that happens. And it's a, a lovely moment. And, and, and I know that even if the rest of the story is not quite right, at least if I can get to that point, I can, everything will cohere at some point. I don't know that I have many moments like that when writing novels. I, I don't know. Do you have moments of rapture? When you've written that storytellers ought to be wild creatures, they are best in disguise. If they lose their wildness, they cannot give us the truest joy. What did you mean? What were you thinking of when uh, you wrote that? I'm not sure I was thinking of um, <clears throat> the things I'm going to be talking about. But um, I really feel that when I talk about wildness, I don't mean um, just drunkenness or wild behavior. I mean... Uh, a wildness of one's sensation of life. Um, I think, uh, I mean wildness in relation to the word intensity that you used earlier. Um, I mean wildness also in terms of a rawness with which we experience um, 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 existence. Um, I think there's a tendency to over-edit the way we experience um, and to experience all the edges, the, the margins, the the subtleties, the big details, the tiny details of life is what feeds the richness of sensation from which we write. Uh, there's a degree to which our writing comes from our experience. Our writing also comes from our deep instincts, our whatever it is we've, we've brought with us into this universe. Um, and it's a meeting of the two things. But the experience awakens that which is sleeping inside us. Um, in a way. Uh, and so without, without exposing oneself, and I don't mean going on wild journeys, um, the opening of one's senses to experience can happen right here in ordinary, everyday life. Uh, so it's that wildness that I'm talking about, a kind of extreme openness to the minutiae of experience. Um, one will become more closed and more quote-unquote civilized I think we diminish the very source from which the energy of writing comes. 
that's that's what I was. We were talking a little bit earlier before you arrived about uh, the place of myth in the writing of fiction. And this, I know, is something very important to you. And I think the reason why, uh, if I may say so from my own perspective of reading your work, it's important is because it suggests that we cannot accept life on the most basic terms as it is presented to us. There is a kind of hidden dimension to life that requires storytelling to bring it out, isn't it? Isn't, isn't that how you feel about writing? Say that again, please. That there's a hidden dimension to life that uh, myth kind of recognizes, that there is something beneath the surface of existence. For, for instance, if we take The Famished Road and the way it opens, it's not how a realist novel would open. There is already a sense from the very first sentences that we are going to go on a journey that outside the world of the, of the realist novel. I wouldn't say outside, I'd say inside. Mm -hmm. um, and you're, I mean, you're right about my interest in the relationship between myth and life. Um, I think we make too much of a distinction between them, um, in a way. And I think there's a way in which myth is already implicated in life as we live it. Um, and also the other way around. Um, so, I'm, so I am very deeply interested in the, the, the subliminal mythic structures of experience. Um, and that brings me also to a great awareness of the, for want of a better phrase, the ritual passages um, that we go through without being aware of it um, as part of experience. Um, I, think a, I think writing, I think storytelling is a gathering of all of these within the realm of very heightened craft. Yes. Uh, because craft, too, is myth. Myth is not just what we make of life. And, uh, um, it, it's, it's cycles and rhythms. Um, it's also what we discover in a material. I think what the writer is seeking for more than anything else are, are, are kind of the mythic undertones in whatever rough, raw honey that... that, that that, that is their first few drafts. We're constantly searching for this uh, structure, not one that we impose, but one that is already implied in the material. Um, so it's the relationship of the, the myth in the craft as well as the myth in the life. It's, it's those two things. Is there a foundational book in your life from which you came to a realization of what your own voice was going to be? Or did it come in spurts over time? I know, for instance, that Oedipus Rex is a book that you have... Which book? Uh, uh, Sophocles, e Oedipus Rex is something that you've said. Yeah, Oedip Oedipus Rex. But my, my foundational text is my mom's, my mother's way of telling stories. She was a very cunning uh, mythic storyteller. Um, because I was a very wild and rough child. And the only thing I responded to, uh, the only thing that really got to me uh, were stories. And she perfected a very strange way of telling me stories about my mistakes um, that were really elliptical, very indirect, never had a point. I never knew what she was really talking about. Um, and, and, she never, and she never finished them. Um, and so I'd spent about 20 years trying to make sense of of these stories. Andrew, I'm going to come back to you to um, ask you, when one has finished writing something, what is the stage up from that? Uh, do you enjoy... Um, uh, there are many divisions one can make between writers. There are those writers who like composition more than revision, and those, those writers whom it's the other way around. Do you like tuning your work or, or, or writing straight up? Well, say it again. Did you, do you enjoy tuning your work? What, what is the kind of work that goes in after you've written a draft of your books? Oh, it's, yeah. I think a lot of writers would, would admit that it's all tuning. I 
clearly, I told you about the first draft, which was nothing, it wasn't even a draft of any kind, sitting and fussing and fussing and fussing. And a lot of it is this interesting thing that, that you're looking for the structure that you didn't plan, which is, because the ideal for me would be to write a book where the reader read it and thought it had always been a story and that your name almost doesn't belong to it, that that would be great. And that means the best we can do is to get close to some mythic other thing that feels natural to the reader instead of imposed. And I always am much too imposing things the first time around. And I reach the moment, the awful moment, which my agent always has to deal with, where I realize I've got it all wrong. And in the back of my mind, I know the change I have to make. And I don't want to do it because I'm too lazy, because it will take months and months. And I, for a few weeks, I charge ahead with the thing as it was, and then finally I break down and, and do it anyway, which is always the right choice. I don't know why I never learn it. It's happening to me right now. <laughs> is there, uh, novel writing is a very long, arduous work, and sometimes uh, one realizes that there's not enough... Um, air inside an idea to carry one across three or four years of one's life. And in, in, at other times when you realize that there's something so exciting, and I think at least when I read Confessions of Max Tivoli, I felt in your case you had found out that like to write backwards, to, to write a story about someone aging backwards is already such an exciting concept that filling it out with detail is something that can be take three or four years and it's all very pleasurable then, isn't it? Yeah, something about that. Well, it is, it is, I love it when I have an idea that clearly is, is too big for me to handle because then I know I won't run out of steam. I might not be up for it. I don't know if I'm up for like an epic novel yet. I haven't done that. Um, but yeah, Max Tivoli made it really easy. Or my last book, which was a time travel novel, I knew I could fill it up. Something as, as tender as a man on a trip around the world doesn't seem like you could really keep going in it. And so you, you really, you know, it's like a, uh, you go on a couple of dates with someone and you don't know how long it's going to go. And then you, you sign up for a, a two-month cruise with them, you know, in a cabin without a window. So um, why do you, uh, it would seem that, you should be radiating confidence, Andrew, from the successes. Am I not radiating confidence? <laughs> Look at this. This is confident. Um, sorry. No, no, go on. I, I, well, I, if you're not going to be radiating confidence at this stage of your life, what about the rest of us? Where are we? Uh, uh, <laughs> let, let, me, let, me, let me step in here. I think the whole idea of the writer's confidence is, uh, is a con. Really? The writer is only confident after the work has been done. Once the work is begun, the confidence goes and you're as humble and as vulnerable and you're as much a novice as any writer or any human being has ever been. You're only confident after your 25th draft and you've, well, not, you're not even really confident then. You're confident maybe 10 years afterwards when it still works. Yeah, and, and there's always that terrible moment in the third or fourth year of a project where you're already majorly invested in it and then you think this is no good uh, <laughs> maybe I need to abandon this and, and just cut my losses at three years and go and then somehow I've been able to avoid that but there are really big moments of confusion and despair in the middle, in the middle of the writing of novels 
As far as I can tell, there's only one person amongst us here on stage who has written a book that's a thousand pages. That's you, Vikram. And I think this is a question that interests uh, um, readers about when you work with something as big as that, what sort of map do you have at the beginning? And, do you, wh and what, sort, wh what are the things you fill in as you go along? Uh, I always start with no map. Okay. I, I mean, with that, you think you're talking about sacred games. Um, the only thing I knew at the beginning was that there was a cop who was talking to a gangster who had barricaded himself inside a strange bunker-like house. Um, and I had no idea what, who the gangster was. So then the first and second and third drafts are very untidy, and they're all about discovering where these characters will be uh, me. And then, like you were saying, somebody said draft 25 is where you start to see the structure of the book, and then you can start consciously sort of architecting the book to actually make sense. Um, but it's endless, endless revision and discovery. Uh, I often, I mean, I do know there are writers who are big planners who, like, have a plot outline on the wall before they start. I think that must be, must be a much more sane way to live, mm. but I've never been able to do it. Can I ask you a question about the book? Because I've always wanted to ask someone who's written a 1,000-page book. 900 <laughs> pages, actually. <laughs> oh, well, then forget it. Yeah. <laughs> I have a feeling, because I write books, I'm never going to write a big one, because I have, like, this taught idea that it's supposed to be so, you know, but I feel a thousand page book, the rules are completely different. Does it, is it feel different? Yeah, very, very different. And, um, you know, in, in a short story, you have that one arc of action, right? And it has to be complete and satisfying. Um, and what I've noticed in my years of teaching is that often students who've been writing short stories will write their first novel and they'll end up writing a 200 page short story which doesn't work because it feels claustrophobic. So when you're writing a book that is above a certain length, I think the readerly expectation is that it'll open out, right? And that there'll be many plots running simultaneously. There's a kind of feeling that a novel promises you of having a broader scale and, and a width to its landscape. Um, and so uh, I have tried to write short stories, um, although my short stories kept getting longer and longer and became novellas. Um, and I'm much more suited for the long Draft. I, I, I know there's some short stories. Um, I've certainly written some short stories that if you add all the drafts together, it comes to about a thousand pages. All right, bravo. <laughs> no, really. Yeah. Um, because uh, because the, the thing about the short story is that um, the idea begins by tending towards expansion, but the more you explore it, it insists on on the reverse, on concision. So you expand it and expand it, and it gets a point. It's a bit like the universe, really, where it expands and gets to a point and then collapses back on itself. Um, and then with the, with the short story, there's a kind of internal optimum. Uh, whereas with a the novel, there isn't really, because a novel can keep growing depending on your relationship with the, 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 the core of the material and, 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 and your craft. Um, and I think of all of them, the short story is more difficult for, 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 for that reason. It's, yeah. it's, a, it's, it's very scary um, because with the novel, I always say this, that the, the, the novel is a very generous and very forgiving form. Um, and you can, you can waffle in a novel for, you know, for 300 pages and still have a great novel. Look at Dostoevsky. Um, <laughs> I love Dostoevsky. That wasn't a, a comment against Dostoevsky. Um, but, the, but the short story betrays itself in every sentence. 
Wouldn't you agree yeah, that yeah. if there's one sentence that's off in a short story, the short story it dies. It all has to point towards the same thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I love in a novel when I note, and maybe they have to be a certain, not necessarily that big, when I realize the, the writer has finally felt so confident that they leave the stage a little bit and start to wander out and uh, characters are in a hot air balloon for no good reason, and it's my favorite part. Um, because I feel confident we're going to go somewhere, like in... Cavalier and Clay, when they, they go to Antarctica for no reason, and people said he should have cut that part, and I was like, no, that shows what the novel really was, that it was really breathing. Yeah, the novel is more, the, the novel is more responsive to spontaneous inspiration. Whereas the short story, no. You have to be very rigid and rigorous. I, I totally agree, but I think that I... I, what I love about the short story is that there's room for mystery. There's more room for mystery. And there's a sort of contract with the reader where I'm not going to tell you everything. And you're going to kind of fill in some gaps here. And there's a little, there's a little bit more room for things to... Um, I mean, when I first started writing short stories, I was very controlled. I felt like, you know, I, I'm going to know what's, where I'm headed and where it's going. And what's become a more successful um, mode for me is to just follow one sentence to the next, like that the one sentence should respond to the sentence before it. And, and, and I, I feel like it is kind of, um, it's kind of wild and scary, but it's also, um, it feels like risky and exciting. And, and also the short story, you can, you can, you know, experiment so much in a way that a novel you might not be able to sustain the same kind of intense voice of an executioner or whatever like i i find um the the room for experimentation really fun especially after writing a novel i've never written a thousand pages but after being in a novel for 300 pages i like i really am so i'm so excited to get to a short story and play yeah i'm i'm very jealous of people who can write short <laughs> Uh, I mean, I, you know, you read Manto or you read Isaac Babel, or, and I'm just like, how the hell did you do that? It's amazing. Two pages, and you made me experience an entire lifetime in, in the world. Um, so it's mysterious to me, but, but I, all, all the props to people who do it. I think the short story is a monk's discipline. It's, uh, it's, about, it's also about tremendous self-denial. Um, you really have to cut the carbs, drop the sugar. Um, <laughs> <laughs> really, and, and, and go to the gym. Uh, actually, this entrance was a very propitious one because uh, I was going to ask a question about different generations in literature. And, uh, I, I, and I will explain my question, which is that uh, when I wrote my first book, uh, I was, um, before you've written a novel, it's very lonely as a writer because uh, you cannot present yourself to other writers and say, this is what I'm doing. And uh, for very good reason, there's no respect for you. You have to do something first before somebody has read it, and suddenly you're accepted into the world of literature and you're prince. And I try to think of the time where, uh, I think that my, as my first stage as a writer, I learned things by myself and by reading. And then suddenly you have, uh, I wouldn't exactly call it shortcuts, but suddenly you have the experience of literary friendship with other writers whom you respect. And in a way, that is another kind of learning which is uh, full of all sorts of gifts that sometimes you can't work up just from learning off the page. And I wanted to ask, one or all of you, what is the greatest and most productive literary friendship of your life, a, a literary relationship with another writer? Wow, good question. Yeah. I'm a little stuck. 
Oh, like, I, or like I, a, I, I feel like the mentorship um, relationship, I mean, I think all of us probably had someone in our lives who, um, who didn't give me any concrete advice, but who, who, was, who, was, who has said, you're on the right path. Just, just keep going. I, I, I think, I believe that there is, I'm not worried about you. Um, in a, at a moment in life where everyone is worried about you. Um, and your parents are worried about anyway. My parents are worried about me. Everybody, um, and then, um, but the, it just takes that one sort of vote of confidence. It's sort of like a talisman. Um, but yeah, literary friendships are, are weird because you only see each other at at conferences and things. It's very intense at those moments, and then you never see them again for I don't know years, and you tuck back into I, your I, cave. I, I don't know. Um, my 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 experience of literary friendships. I don't know if it's true for you, but I've found that um, you have the, maybe the most intense literary friendships at the earliest stages of your careers, of your career, um, with other writers who are also starting out. Um, and in, in Nigeria, there was a whole group of us. We, hadn't, we were just learning how to write poems and short stories and, and journalism. And we would kind of exchange our stories and criticize one another's works. And we carried on doing that up to the point where we became a bit successful and then, and then it became... But what I find very, very interesting about literary friendships is, um, is the way in which a, a good writer friend understands the inside, something of the inside of your process and can give you a kind of criticism that an editor couldn't give you. I'll give you an example. Um, a good friend of mine read a poem that I wrote and he said... You know, Ben, about this poem, um, I, know, I know how you think, and we've had lots of conversations, but the best part of the poem isn't in there yet. So I took this poem away, and I rewrote it over about two years, gave it back to him, and he said, it's there. But it's, he didn't say it's good, it's bad. He said the best part of you isn't in there yet. Um, another kind of literary friendship is with a, 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 an older writer. Um, I knew James Baldwin. Um, I knew people like Carlos Fuentes. And from them, I think the value is just really the incidental insights of conversation. I think conversation is the, one of the richest parts of, of literary friendship. Uh, suggested books to read. Um, new ways of reading a writer that you already think you had uh, an opinion about. Sometimes they say, really, you think so about so-and-so? Hmm. Have you looked at it this way? And suddenly a writer opens up. I give a really good example. Um, I used to always think of myself as a, a as Homerian rather than Virgilian. Uh, and a really good writer friend, we got, got into a big conversation about it, and I said, I'm a Homerian. And he said, really? Have you, have you looked at Virgil again? Um, because Virgil is really about the distillation of the epic into the three stages of, of the Greek idea of, of, of tragedy and, and, and lyricism. I went back, reread Virgil's Aeneid, and I saw a completely different book, just from a conversation. So conversation becomes the, the, the university among, among writers. Uh, I'd have to say for me, uh, I don't know if I'd call it quite a friendship. It was more of a mentorship. But my relationship with my teacher, Donald Barthelme, uh, was probably... Donald Barthelme. Yeah. He's a great American writer, um, and I went to graduate school and he was my teacher. Um, and what was interesting was that Don, the kind of fiction that he produced, these very short, 
um, comedic, surreal short stories um, was completely unlike what I was trying to do at the time, which is write a big mythical book, Red Earth and Pouring Rain. But he understood it instantly and then was able to give me precisely those insights that I needed. Um, and also, like you were saying, at certain times in your life, especially when you haven't published anything yet, all you need is somebody's faith in you, right? And so when he said, this is good, you should finish it, I carried that with me for years. Um, and I owe him a lot. I think for me, I, I didn't have any kind of mentor when I was a young writer. I think later, after I published, I met older writers who I think basically showed me how to be act decently towards towards fellow writers. I, I, they sort of showed me how to do that. Um, but I, I had been thinking about, I guess, my best, my greatest influences is my best friend, uh, Daniel Handler, who's a children's book writer under Lemony Snicket. We became friends 15 years ago. I just saw him in Chennai. I see him every day. We go swimming in the morning at 7 in the morning. We talk about books. We swim very slowly um, and in very cold water. And then we go to a cafe and we write, and he will read my, he gives me all the advice, because he's, when I first met him, he was famous and prolific and things, and it was been wonderful to get advice from someone my own age, um, who was generous enough to, to tell me his experiences. And I remember on one book of mine, I gave him the first draft, and we met at our favorite bar, and he had a gimlet ready for me. It's the nicest thing a person can do, is have ordered your drink, still cold for you. And I sat down and he said to me, Andy, it is an honor to watch you struggle with a work of art. <laughs> and I knew it was bad. <laughs> They'll tell you when it's bad in a graceful way. When I, when I, when I, when I met James Baldwin in 1987, 88, I think, um, we were on a long walk to an event that he was about to give and I was just talking about this novel I was writing and I was... I was talking and I was talking and he was very patient and he listened for about 10 minutes and then after there was a, there was a pause and he looked at me and he said, I don't know if you know the picture of James Baldwin, he's got these big eyes. He looked at me with these big eyes and he said, Ben, I stopped talking process around the age of 30. <laughs> I stopped talking process at the age of 30. And I wasn't 30 then and I became really conscious um, of not talking process at 30. Um, but it made me aware of the fact that, you know, there's talking process and then there's thinking process. Um, so things like that have a big, big impact on you. There's another famous story. It didn't have, didn't have to do with me. Uh, uh, a writer came up the stairs of a flat where Gabriel Garcia Marquez was staying, took out a little book, threw it on the table and said, uh, um, Gabo, read this book and learn. And it was a book called Pedro Paramo by Juan Rufo. It changed Marquez's life. So also suggesting books. Yeah. I, I, I really love what you said, Andrew, because it made me think about the, what my mentor also gave me was he was able to tell me, this isn't you. Like, this is not sounding like you. I know you're funnier than this, or you're trying to be serious carver somebody else. And which is part of the process of becoming a writer, but um, being, I think we're always trying, you write in order to find yourself, to locate yourself in the world or in this story. And, and um, I feel like that early person is there 
or maybe still is in your life to tell you, to call you on your BS. And yeah, that's hard to find. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Jepper Bites, a podcast produced by Lonchora in association with the Z Jepper Literature Festival. Thank you.